Today on Soundtrack Alley, Eric Woods and I go into the details of the film Sneakers from 1992. We'll discuss the cast, the background, how this film is still relevant today, and the score by James Horner. Hope you enjoy this discussion because it begins now. your host. Today, I'm discussing sneakers. First of all, I want to make it clear that this movie has a large cast of people that are just amazing. Next, I want to discuss or address that even though the technology in the film is dated, there are things in this film that are so relevant that it can scare you. Third, the score is so utterly brilliant it can stand on its own. Let's start discussing the film, shall we? Eric, when was the first time you saw this movie? I first saw this movie in the theater, and it was a really special time for me because um, <laughs> it's a bit of a long story, and I'm not sure how relevant it is, but it's just it was it was really unique for me because it really helps me remember the movie and and what I felt when I was watching it. So. Um, that was Canada's 125th birthday. Oh, wow. And um, what the government did was they orchestrated this program where students from one school could go to another province and hang out with students from another province for a week. Huh. And so, uh, you know, I signed up and I, I got to go. But before I went to Newfoundland, which is where I was going to go, the Newfies came here first. And so, you know, we... Took him out on the town. We did everything, and we thought, "Hey, you know, let's go see a movie." And so, what was playing? Well, sneakers was playing, and so we all—I don't know how many of us there were. There's 16 of us, maybe 16 to 20, maybe of us, and we all just, you know, we took two rows, and yeah, we watched this 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 great great heist movie, and that's how come I I remember it so fondly. And the reason I do remember that so fondly is that three weeks later, I went to Newfoundland, and that's uh, where I met my my future wife. So I was 16, and she she was 14, turning 15, and that's where we met. And so, um, you know, because of that uh, whole trip and Canada's birthday and whatnot, um, yeah, that's what happened. That's cool. Yeah. That's, so that's pretty um, good. Yeah. So it's a, that's what a, it's a really unique, um, interesting story, and. And even though the film is was great, it's just one of those kind of magical uh, movie moments that I remember because I was just surrounded by, you know, really good friends in my own group. And then just mm-hmm. meeting all of these other fantastic people from another province was um, was just a fantastic way to watch a movie. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I saw this in the 90s after it came out, and I've always enjoyed this movie. Anytime it's been on, I've wanted to watch it. Um, the n- dialogue is really smartly written for this movie. And then 
Um, the score, while there are subtle things about it, there's so much to the score that I can't even attempt to put into words right now because there's so much depth to um, James Horner's uh, elaborate, dramatic movements in the score. Um, and the question is, did we get films like a techno thriller before this? I mean, like in the late 80s or even before 92? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think of like uh, war games. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, I'm pretty sure there were other ones. Um, uh, and I can't, I can't remember. Well, because like Pelican Brief didn't come out till later. Um, that came out a year, yeah, that net, came out a year later. And that was another James Horner come out? Um, that was around 92, I think too, or, or, or maybe even later. Yeah. It was around that kind of, you know, information mm-hmm. highway expl- exploration, um, exploitation, um, kind of internet yeah. films. Like there was hackers mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm sure there were other ones, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, computers were, were kind of a big thing, you know, in the eighties. And so, um, I, but I, off the top of my head, I can't recall, and I'm sure our audience probably are screaming out names right now. So, you know, if they know more. <laughs> well, um, they can always tell. They, they can, can always, always let us. us know. Yeah. But yep. I think this That's is, right. I mean, out of all of these kind of, you know, techno thrillers, I would put sneakers, you know, right up close to the top. And, and it's also, mm-hmm. you know, one of the best heist movies, um, of all, all time as well. I agree. Um, it's. I just, I think the writers did a really good job for considering. So here we're getting into a lot of the discussion uh, regarding, say, the director and how long it took him. Um, he and other writers, uh, the co-writers, well, the director was Phil Alden Robinson, and then the co-writers were Lawrence Lan- Lasker and Walter Parks. And... They, uh, it took them nine years to make the movie. And that just blows my mind how long it took them. Um, there was an interview that was put out fairly recently, um, where two people actually interviewed the director and how they always pictured Robert Redford being around their age. And yet, According to information at the time, Robert Redford had already read for the part. They didn't really want him to be there because the director felt that he was an icon to this this guy. And so he was like, oh, no, I don't want to uh, give him such a horrible thing to, to try to play for. And he's like, he wants to do it. And so he went ahead and got it set up. And it's like, oh, wow. Um, that was, that was really impressive to me. Now, what did you, what did you find regarding that? I mean, do you, nine years? Well, yeah. And, and we, you know, we just talked about war games Well, it was, you know, uh, Lasker and Parks who, uh, wrote war games. And so they first came up with the idea of sneakers, um, I think a few years before war games, but it's like, you know, while they were doing research for war games. They had some early drafts of of the screenplay, so yeah, I think the I think the writing process is what took them nine years to get right, and um, 
But I think that when you talk about Robert Redford, um, you know, I mean, and at the time, you know, 92, you know, he was somebody that I wasn't overly familiar with. I knew who he was, but I don't think I'd ever seen anything with Robert Redford in it. And I so, hadn't seen the sting until after I yeah, saw this movie. Yeah, me too. And I thought he was just kind of like, um, you know, just an everyday man and, mm-hmm. and who just gets kind of put in this extraordinary situation, which is what makes, you know, like Alfred Hitchcock thrillers so great and relatable. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. even though he was older, um, and I never had that issue. I've never had an issue with, you know, seeing a film where, you know, there's, there's 67 year olds portraying characters. I don't care or whether it's a kid's movie, mm-hmm. as long as I, as long as I get a good script and it's an interesting movie, I honestly don't care who is in the lead role. So it just, what I thought it brought was instant credibility, um, especially with even the age range of the entire cast. But uh, once you had Robert Redford, he seemed like a, a seasoned yeah. veteran. And it, that, that became the All the cards the most, fell into place. Yeah, and well, and that became the most, yes, right. So, but it became the most important part of the movie because he had, yeah, right. He had to be a seasoned veteran and he had to be believable in that role that he had been in computer technology and, and sort of hacking and breaking into banks for, for years. Um, but as for the casting of it, yeah, that was just a, you know, a real happy accident, but getting somebody like Robert Redford, that name, and then you have this film, this hacker film, which is kind of a, a niche topic or genre. But now you have Robert Redford's going to be in this this hacker technological thriller. Well, of course I want to work with this guy. Sign me up. So it was easier for them to go out in the casting process and get the people that they wanted to fill out the team. And that's why the team, the entire casting of the team is so incredible. I mean, I just I'm watching this movie and like it's like watching Ocean's Eleven or any type of great movie with a wonderful, you know cast of characters and, 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 and not really one of them is the main actor, although, or the the main character, even though Robert Redford is, but they all kind of play off each other perfectly and they don't care really on how much screen time they are getting. They're just, they're just a group working together. And I just felt like that there was instant chemistry, especially with that opening sequence where they're breaking into the bank. Um, it's like they've been working together forever. And I, and that's, and again, that, that's just, comes from a, a witty, uh, smart script as well. So one of the things that gets mentioned a lot is the trope of let's get the team together. I mean, you've got Sidney Portier, you've got Dan Aykroyd, you've got River Phoenix, I believe in one of his final roles yeah. in the film. And oh, what's the other guy? I can't remember his name. What, Whistler? Yes, Whistler. Yeah. Uh, Whistler and, Whistler's the one that nobody remembers. <laughs> just too bad. <laughs> but he's such David a Strathairn good actor. Because David Strathairn is an amazing yeah. actor. Yeah. yeah. So he's fantastic. And he actually plays a really good blind man in this. He's very well, convincing. And, and that's the thing. The director and the two writers, they actually did so much research into this movie because they went to find like people that would hack into places or that they'd tell them all the details of how they got into certain places. And they even talked to a blind uh, hacker and that's where Whistler came from. And I thought it was just really cool that 
they did all this research to get the movie right, to get it smartly written, to get it perfect. But then Dan Aykroyd, oh, and then, of course, they have Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley played Cosmo, and Dan Aykroyd originally wanted to play Cosmo. He's like, because I've been hanging out with Jerry Garcia, and I got this whole persona going. And he's like, no, no, we want you to play Mother. And he's like, who you get to play Cosmo? Ben Kingsley. Okay, I'll play Mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, f- for the character, it was perfect. Because didn't he oh, make yeah. some sort of stipulation that he was allowed to talk about his conspiracy theories? Yes. And- and things yep. of that sort. So, and it was perfect for his character. It's absolutely perfect for his character. Everybody w- was in the right role. It was just was just so perfect. And um, but I've always wondered that you know we were talking about the technology and and the people they were consulting, and I always wondered, especially with sound. Um, you know when Whistler is able to listen to certain sounds and detect what is in the room, and just based on certain tones, and I. And of course, I, I know, like you know, with uh, anybody that's blind, they get a uh, they they get a heightened sense of of hearing and touch and everything else um, because of the lack of sight. But I was just wondering if it's true where he can detect what type of um, alarm system is in the building, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one thing about the script that originally it was 180 pages long, yeah. and they called it sneakers greatest hits and it was just there was so much fantastic stuff i guess in it but they needed to shorten it down to make it smarter and more concise so they got they called this other script that they had cut a bunch of stuff out of it and they called it sneakers light and it was only 93 pages i mean that's a big difference well it is and and i and i like the exercise because like most first drafts are are overly long, and I'm you know you you'd be filming for for years if you kept every single idea in there. But what the idea was would fill out, and what Robinson wanted to do was to say, hey, let's take out all the fluff, and let's just let's just let's just tell the story, and and then you know does that work? Can that work without all the other stuff? And if it does then we can start putting some more of that stuff in there. And if and then if that works, then we know we're okay. And I think that's smart. It really is. And, and it's just, I'm glad that there is a dedication to story. Story over everything. If you do not have a story, if you do not have a screenplay, a proper screenplay, you are not going to have a good movie. No. And and I and I and that's what I I really do appreciate. And yeah, if it does take nine years to make a movie of this sort, then it takes nine years to make a movie of this sort. Because again, going back to it a couple of weeks ago, and it's not one that I ever say, "Hey, I want to return to it." But when I do, it's it's always a delight because I mean I can't pick anything out of it that I would say is terrible. I mean, even even the ending is sort of like subdued, right? It's they, they, the the bad guy, quote unquote bad guy, and the good guy do have their kind of final face off, but it's not like your typical third act fight scene, or whether the bad or the bad guy has to die, or you know the good guy always gets away with it. I mean, to be totally honest, they don't really get away with it. Although they sort of do, but it's but it's done very 
it, it's done in a clever way, but it's nothing overly flashy. I mean, the biggest action sequence, well, one of the biggest, well, first, before we even get to Rube Whistler's rescue, one of the biggest action sequences is a guy, you know, uh, walking at the pace of two inches a second, right? And so that, and, and if you can believe in a scene like that and making that work, then I think you're all right. And then if you can believe that your two characters are going to talk instead of fight, I think that takes a lot of guts, a lot of really, a lot of guts to do because most people think that you need this big, gigantic third act and a blockbuster to, to keep the audience informed, but movie makers don't trust the audience, which is really mm-hmm. too bad. Mm-hmm. But it's also interesting how, with the effect of the music, um, James Horner really builds tension uh, for the movie, especially in the scene where Robert Redford's character, uh, Bishop, is meeting with the FBI agents. And um, they had handed over the box. And Sidney Portier's character, I can't remember his name in the show. Crease. Crease. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so Crease, he says, telephone, it's your mother. And yes. throughout that whole scene, there's tension buildup. And he's like, She's very sick. And he goes to the car and he's like, get in the car. And so they drive away and there's like the tension in that scene was like really serious, really like high octane thriller uh, type music because it just built and built because of what they had discovered. And I thought it was just so smartly written and it didn't have to be this big, long car chase or something. You know, it it was kind of, you know, very subtle, but I thought it really hit its mark. Yeah, and that's the key. For any other movie, you're like, all right, we're at a certain point where we now need to do a 10 minute action sequence because the, the audience is getting bored. And if you feel, and if you're feeling that way, then that means you don't have a good script. If you feel like the audience is going to be bored, um, you got a problem. And that's why so many films have too many action scenes in it. Oh, absolutely. Because they don't have good story. Yeah, it's it's just they, you know, they think the audience has attention deficit disorder, and they don't. Um, trust your audience, and but but again, this all goes back to writing, and that's what I, I think is is so great about a movie of this sort is that any other kind of high-tech thriller is so full of unnecessary action. And so this one is a smart movie for smart people. Um, and, and it's not an overly difficult thriller, like dramatic thriller where there's some that I've watched and it's tough to keep track of names and things of that sort. But this one is just really, like you said, it's really tight. It's really concise. It, it, it's told in a in a simple fashion, but as I mentioned, it trusts the audience to 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 follow, and and to trust that dialogue and and pure suspense and kind of like these slow moving scenes are what's going to keep your interest. And yeah. it does. It does from from the beginning of this film right to the end. It's 
it's just a, yeah, it's an underrated perfect movie. Mm-hmm. And so many things about it. There's, you know, these little tidbits of scenes in the film that, uh, I mean, if a person wasn't really paying attention, they wouldn't really see it. They wouldn't see these, like, different things about it and say, hey, that kind of looks familiar or something like that, you know, like uh, the very beginning of the film. I think it was very a good choice for them actually to make it black and white. And like that opening scene was black and white. I mean, there I don't think there was any color in that opening scene. It's mm. snowing. Um, the two guys that they got to play young Robert Redford and young Ben Kingsley, um, they actually spent an entire day just talking with the actors about their growing up uh, acting careers and what they did. And these two, they got their characters right on. And it was really smartly written because these were two young college students, you know, trying to hack into something and one of them leaves to go get something and then the other one gets caught for what they both had done. And in the background of the scene, it's actually the clock tower from Back to the Future. Oh, is it really? Yes. It's the part of the facade of the building scene is... The Hill Valley Clock Tower. <laughs> that's fantastic. Isn't it? Yeah, that's fantastic. But if you really weren't fantastic. looking, sure. you wouldn't know. And right. that's the whole point of it. It's like they just needed somewhere to film it on a back lot. And it was yeah. perfect for that scene. And I'm so glad that they made it black and white for that scene because you needed that shadow. You needed that uh, contrast of light and dark uh, to kind of build... Uh, the story that was going to happen. Yeah, um, the scene actually there there is color in it. It's just so very desaturated. Oh, it's is got, it? It's, is it? It's it's, it's really kind of like muted. Yeah, it's muted. It's okay. it's it's kind of like a blue and purple tones, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. And it's in uh, it's actually filmed four by three as well. Um, mm. So oh, yeah, 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 it is. And and yeah. it's uh, but it's such a great way of. Of introducing our two characters. And it's funny, I just, I, I forget about Cosmo until he actually shows up again halfway through the movie. And then you're like, oh yeah, right. And so, and then, and then you're actually really feeling for Cosmo, although he's, what he wants to do isn't great. Um, but I do feel his pain because his buddy just kind of left him there. And, you know, he's, his, he's on the hook while he gets, while um, Bishop gets away scot-free. And uh, so that's, um, that, that's why the, their initial meeting again years later, such a very powerful uh, scene with two incredible actors. And, you know, they're just talking as if they were best buddies. And then all of a sudden there's this, this change in tone and Cosmo's like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting my revenge on you because yeah. of what you did to me. And you're going to, in, you know, you enjoy your jail time as much as I did. And I was like, wow, that's sinister. That's just <laughs> crazy. And, and so, yeah, and, and then that's just, just, and then that really moves things along again, where now he 
Bishop is um, inspired, but he he now has to you know clear his name somehow, and that just brings us to the whole Platronics break in, and just the way that they get from one point of the movie to the next point is so good and so spot on and so perfectly timed. It just and that's what keeps the energy going in the movie. It, it never flattens out, even though. You know, most of it's most of it's like dialogue and tech talk, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, and it 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 shows the strength of the script, and shows that even with with it taking nine years to build the script, they had different elements that they were researching that they did. There was a professor that was uh, Len Alderman. Uh, he was one of the three mathematicians who invented the RSA uh, crypto system, and he actually served as a consultant on the movie and spent several days constructing the slides Janik used uh, during the symposium for the Unbreakable Codes, which that just blows my mind because it shows the tightness of the script, how they needed to show the relevance of the calculations that they could be something that could actually be real. Um, I just, uh, I'm just amazed at how good the, even the technical talk that's in the movie, uh, it's still relevant to our day today. Some of the things that they talk about in the film are just really compelling for our day today. And it, like, there's someone, um, well, Bernard Abbott, well, yeah, uh, Bernard Abbott was named after Robert Abbott, and he was a technical consultant, and he's the one that is referred to as the father of information security. And it's like, that's crazy. So it shows, you know, even at this point, when they wrote the movie, maybe they they did the research they wanted it right and even today we're thinking of those events in that film and how how relevant it is even our you know to everyone well i mean yeah you're talking about privacy breaches you know mm -hmm. through facebook and twitter and 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 things of that sort and and you know it i Russian i live, hacking. well yeah and all that sort of and and you're always talking about cryptography and how can you make it better i mean i i have a program called dashline which i'm sure everybody's heard of and it protects all my passwords but it's all you know encrypted i'm the only one that can, has a master code that can get into it um there's no real way of breaking into it although i'm sure there there's some way but i mean just the 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 cryptography the, um, I mean, I live, you know, to 20 minute drive south of the uh, University of Waterloo. And it is one of the leading universities in the entire world for quantum computing. And I've been there, I've done shoots with them, and what they are trying to do with quantum mechanics, and, you know, encryption. It, it's insane. And, and I'm coming, and, and there's a point that I'm making is that I've been to their presentations and filmed them and nearly fallen asleep. Um, it's like these guys are just in their own world, just like it would be like 
them showing up for a film music conference. It's like me going to a quantum computing conference. It's like, what is this? <laughs> They're all talking a different language. Yeah. And and then, so now you have to somehow, and I'm not saying there's quantum computing involved in this, but you somehow have to take that sort of expo- exposition, work that into a screenplay, but make it into a way of telling the audience that this is what this is. It's technically important. It's it's extremely technical that it would just blow your mind if you tried to understand it. But they simplified it so that you knew what was going on. But as you said, with everybody that they were consulting, everything that you see on screen, at least I would hope so, is plausible. And it is. I mean, you... I. I don't know about it in a, you know, all-encompassing single box that's going to encrypt everything, but you have heard of people breaking into the Pentagon. You have heard of people breaking into this place and that place and, and you know, getting in trouble for, for hacking this and hacking that. And like, as you said, back in 92, you know, computers are, are fairly new to the public, maybe. And a lot of them are too large to yeah, fit into a yeah, room. Exactly. But now here you are. And, and, and it didn't look overly, and then another thing that I really appreciated, it, it still stayed with the technology of the time where, you know, some hacking movies, like if you watch like hackers or I think like Lawnmower Man or uh, Swordfish and you got these hackers behind like, you know, 16, um, huge screens and it's, everything's like 3d animated and they're hacking and they're typing like really fast. And it's like, you know, they're rock and roll stars of the hacking world. And it's like, what is this junk? Here you got a whole bunch of guys just with a bunch of gear and they have this old computer and it just looks like the tech of the time in 1992 and they're just breaking into a system using what looks like a, you know, a DOS machine. Yeah. (laughs) And And what they're able to use. Yeah. And that's what they're able to, and that's what just keeps it grounded Mm -hmm. and and then makes it so dangerous because, you know, something so simple like that, the simple computers like that, all of a sudden you have this black box that can now break into everything and cause not only, uh, you know, huge corporations to lose tons of money, but one of the best scenes in the entire movie is the too many secrets scene mm-hmm. where they finally break into, uh, what, what airport were they breaking into? It doesn't matter. They break into uh, one of the airport the, uh, security systems. Norton Air Force Base? No, no. Well, they and they wanted to bring down a commercial airliner, and that's when it yeah. got crazy. That like, got, it's like, that. And that's it. Yeah. A press of a button, and you're going to kill hundreds and yeah. and you know we could talk about that later with with horner's music because he really makes that scene as tense as it is mm-hmm. but that's where even these people as hackers um doing what they do know that what they have is extremely dangerous and nobody really should be using it for for you know evil and and because that's what would happen yeah. you get into the wrong hands and all of a sudden the world is at their fingers t- fingertips and they control everything which is crazy yeah. And you know how we hear the term today, information phishing, um, like trying right. to get a person to divulge his or her password. Um, and they apply it to hackers, but it's social engineering. It's like, well, there's social media right now and social media is getting hacked. So yeah, this is definitely relevant. Absolutely. Yeah, it's scary. It really is scary what you can do, what anybody can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have, if you're, if you're smart and you have the right equipment and you know how to get in, um, you know, you're going to get like, in. 
like the quote that we heard earlier at the beginning here, that it's all about the information, that, you know, it's factoring in breakthrough on encryption and um, algorithms and um, RSA algorithms and technical guidance and, you know, things like that. It all comes together in this movie and there's some very tense moments that we feel in the score. So let's get into that. Let's let's talk about some certain elements of the score that actually highlight um, even the sound effects for the movie. Um, different dialogue that's used. Um, how do you de- how would you describe that? Yeah, like Horner's score plays does a lot of uh, heavy lifting with the definitely with the emotions that you're feeling. Um, he can he can easily add you know a little bit of comedy to an incredibly tense situation just by the playing of a few notes and or reacting to something that's on screen and then kind of playing a little ditty afterwards and the comedy isn't like you know stupid comedy music where it's just on the nose comedy it's just enough to kind of give you that that lighter feeling during an incredibly tense sequence. And we'll talk about that later with the play, uh, Playtronics break-ins uh, cue. But then he can, um, you know, he can make an incredibly, um, what seems like an innocent scene, like the whole too many secrets scene with the Scrabble yes. pieces and everything that's happening in there. I mean, you strip the music away from it and the energy of the scene is gone. And, but if you add, Horner's music for that sequence, which I think is about six minutes long. Um, he's telling you so much in the, in, in the music and as to, it almost becomes horror music. Uh, the, the tension is extremely high and you're wondering why. And then when they finally get chime, to the airport. Not really yeah. chimes, but there's like. Uh, it's dissonant long, strings. It's, I yeah. mean, the thing is you get this. It's the instrumentation is actually quite unique for Horner in this score. And I, and I went through his filmography and I think the only thing that might come close to something like this in more of a lighter fashion would be his class action score back in 91. He did introduce the saxophone. There are some suspenseful cues, but I think that this movie was the beginning of a new sound for Horner and his suspense thriller sound. Mm-hmm. And this becomes relevant in scores like, uh, you know, there's there's some of it in Patriot Games. There's uh, definitely aspects of this score that are in uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher a year later. Um, it's in Pelican Brief, obviously. Uh, it, there's even a cue in Pelican Brief that sounds almost exactly the same as one from Apollo 13 years later. Uh, I think it's... Oh, is it the docking sequence in Apollo 13? But anyway, it's the it's the it's the clicking claves. It's that wooden block sound. It's the the kind of the stabbing piano music. Um, there's this these suspenseful strings underneath any all of it. There's the the big drums, the toms that play underneath it. There are no trumpets, from what I can recall. There's some low brass, and there's a couple of big brass blasts that really. Uh, uh, bring up the action or the 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 tension of the movie. I think well, like that scene where you know he goes to the car. That 
is one right. example. Yeah, but it's not like your traditional action cue, but mm-hmm. it's still very much it's still very much a traditional I guess James Horner cue and just the way that he tacks certain types of 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 films where this is more grounded in kind of like real life like that suspense thriller type of movie mm-hmm. again go back to pelican brief and you're going to hear something very yeah. similar um but um, the unique aspect of this though is is that he also gets into the character of bishop and that is portrayed by the soprano saxophone which again very unique something that i think um around that time was something that jerry goldsmith first explored in the russia house and then james yeah. horner started bringing that in for um, I mean, he's not saying that Horner hasn't used sax before. I mean, it's all over like uh, Commando and uh, yeah. 48 Hours yeah. and yeah. scores of that sort. But this, but this more kind of gentler this feel. This with a theme, like Absolutely. Bishop's theme. It was, yeah, and it was that just cuts the through the tension. That, yeah, that really cuts through the tension, brings some warmth into it. But, but the way that's arranged, the way it's orchestrated, I don't think anybody had heard Horner do anything like this before. And it really became a staple of his nineties um, suspense thrillers. I mean, you hear it all over ransom. I mean, he had two, two weeks to write that score. So, I mean, he incorporated a lot of what he did in sneakers into ransom as well. So you can hear this style evolve or be used again throughout the, mostly throughout the nineties. And it's really, I mean, again, you, you know, if you complain about Horner doing the same thing over and over again, listen to this. There's a lot of stuff that's developed in this score that you will then hear in other scores. The genius motif that is in Sneakers, that's in Bicentennial Man, that's in Beautiful Mind. I'm pretty sure the origin is Sneakers. It's just underneath everything. It's not, it doesn't come to the forefront the way it does in those other scores. But that motif, that ostinato played on the piano, I think the first time you hear it is here. And if it's somewhere else, please let me know. But the four-note danger motif is hidden. Um, you don't really, you can't really, I mean, you can pick it out, but you don't really go, hey, that's the four-note danger motif, as if we heard it in, in, in Willow. It's in the sax, but it gets developed even more um, in, in sneakers. And I just like that. I wish Horner would have done this more in his career where he was taking ideas that he already established early on in his career and then maybe reused them, but tried to hide them in clever ways. And I think that in sneakers, he did, he did just that. And it's just, it's, it's it's really really a fascinating score. Yeah. It's, 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 it's effective. It's, it's perfect. It's, there's some other weird sounds that he, um, like in the Cosmo, um, Cosmo Bishop uh, scene, the, 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 the first one where they meet again um, in Cosmo's office, they almost sound like, like dolphin whale calls. And I don't know what that sound is, but it's got this weird sound and it's just really unique. I think unique for James Horner's palette at the time. And that's what I really appreciate about this score. It doesn't get talked about enough, honestly, as being one of oh, his no. best scores. It really is. And I, you know, I can't fault it. I don't, there's nothing out of place. It really is a perfect score. I can't take anything out. I can't put anything in. 
is just so perfectly spotted, so perfectly scored. I mean, I wish these two, uh, I wish Alden Robinson and, and James Horner uh, did more because they worked on Field of Dreams. They worked on on this. And, you know, if they if they had worked even more, um, you know, kind of down the road, it would have been it would have been great. But I mean, I know they worked on Freedom Song, but that's quite a forgettable score. And then, you know, some of all fears went to Jerry Goldsmith. And that was the end of the 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 collaboration, which is which is really too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing about this score, the, what makes it so good is some of the dialogue, some of the sound effects to the film help the score. Um, let's talk about a few of those. Um, there's three I'd like to play. Um, the universal title sequence, like the, the opening sequence, there's some unique sounds to that. Um, and then, uh, there's sneakers, uh, with, uh, the discovering Playtronics and then the Playtronics sneak in part one. Uh, what can you tell me regarding these cues that make it stand out with the dialogue, with the sound effects, but also enhancing it with the film music? Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you. The reason why I wanted to point these three out, they were they're three previously they start still unreleased cues. They're not on the album at all. And the album is actually plays really well. It's about forty five minutes long. And I think the the corner highlights all of the, the the best parts of the score in in his album. But I'm hoping one day we get an expanded edition and we can include cues such as this. And I think there are two other, maybe two or three other cues as well that aren't on the album that would just make for a great complete release. But the opening of this film I mean, it's great that it opens with uh, Horner's Universal uh, theme, which uh, he established back in 1990 for the first time for Universal's 75th anniversary, and that was first premiered during Back to the Future Part 3. And so I hope you play the Universal fanfare because I or the Universal theme that Horner wrote because I love it. I think it's just one of the best. But then the movie starts off with um, the main titles, and before we get into that scene with Cosmo and Bishop when they were in college... Uh, Horner introduces the main theme of the movie, but it's played just on soprano sax. That's it. It's Branford Marcellus just playing the theme so gently as the credits come on. And then just as we're segueing into the actual picture and, 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 and seeing Bishop and Cosmo doing what they're doing, there's this great segue into uh, Mike uh, Bloomfield and Al Cooper's bluesy cut called really and it's just that's just a classic classic tune and i love the way that it works in
And then there's this Scovering Playtronics. Um, what I love about it is the, is the way that it builds. I and mean, Corner does this a bunch oh, of times yeah. in the score, but it builds up with kind of like the sax and the piano and the strings. And then we get this wonderful reveal of 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 uh, Playtronics for the first time. Mm-hmm. And of yeah. course, this is this is Cosmos. And you got the percussion and yeah, and you get yeah. all these kind of. But what's really neat is that after that, after we see Playtronics, which is Cosmos front for the uh, his secret operations. The scene then cuts to like um, the group kind of surveying the building from afar, and it's uh, it's Mother and Whistler, and they're doing like the, the the sonic discovery of what's in what room. And Horner at that time is he's oh, I love that pl- scene, but it's it's a really cool scene, but it's so well scored because you realize that I mean the tension is still there while they're sonically going through the building, and and Horner's got these kind of dis, um, dissonant strings. Those clavs are back, the the ticking blocks. Um, and then there's these neat kind of quick string hits with low pianos that kind of signal the danger that's lying ahead, but it's it plays after Whistler mentions what's in each room. And then that's where I was talking about where Horner will, will reply to kind of what has happened on screen via dialogue. It's really interesting. Very good, Bish. Remind me to make you an honorary blind person. Great. Where's this road go? Nowhere. Looks like it ends right around that hill. What's behind the hill? Nothing. It's private property. Private. Forget it. It's a toy company. Toy company, my ass. That's laser fencing. There's high voltage on the perimeter. The whole building says go away. It's Cosmo, I know it. The toy company's a front. Mother, get the directional. Carl, get the video. Let's go. Second floor, Northwest 2. That's a bathroom. Second floor, Northwest 3. That's an emergency exit. How do you know that? I can hear the emergency floodlight batteries recharging. Hold it right there. Chris, what's this mean? My voice is my passport. Verify me. Some sort of voice print ID. I'll check it out. What am I listening to now, Mother? Third floor, southwest corner. Oh, it's bursting with ultrasonic. I've never heard sensors that powerful before. Bish, someone is very serious about keeping people out of that room. Yeah. Okay. Okay, there's the corner room with the motion detectors Whistler heard. That's Cosmo's office. I saw the sensors. They keep the lights on all night, so we have to assume the sensors are on, too. 
it won't be easy getting in there. And then, of course, uh, the next one you're going to hear um, is the Playtronics break-in. And this is the cue that plays just before the cue that's on the album called Playtronics break-in. And this is some of the most tense, interesting writing that uh, that Horner creates. And this is where, you know, Carl enters the building for the first time. And he's like, as a groundskeeper, he goes to the bathroom and he makes his way through the uh, uh, the ceiling of the bathroom to get into the building. And there's some wonderful kind of uh, orchestral flourishes and interesting colors. And it's such a great lead up to the, the, the kind of main assault on the building. And then what's really neat, I want, what I want you to pay attention, and if you can hear it through the dialogue, are these kind of low uh, descending piano chords that kind of like go ding, 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 ding. And it's, yeah, it's just it's yeah, such exactly. a cool color. And you don't hear it on the soundtrack album, which mm. sucks. Because it's such a neat color. But what is also really unique just before the cue ends, and listen for it, there's a marimba. And it's playing the the sneaker's main theme just before it then cuts to uh, the apartment scene with Liz and um, the kind of goofy programmer. And uh, But you'll hear the marimba play the, uh, the, dun-na, 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 the theme on marimba. And it's like, where did that come from? So... Um, yeah, so these cues play with dialogue and they're ripped from the movie, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of focus on these cues that probably people haven't heard unless they watch the film. Hi, my name is Werner Brandis. My voice is my passport. Verify me. Is that the garden? I thought they already left. I guess not. May I use your John, please? Uh, listen, a few minutes ago, a gardener came. Skip it, I see him. Okay, fellas, I'm out of here. 
Carl, have a nice ride. One of the things I find most thrilling about this movie is even at one point, Bishop goes to see a friend of his that's a Russian. And, um, and even the tension that builds there is that there's an FBI agent, but he's not really an FBI agent. And he, he gets hit on the head by... <laughs> by one of the fake FBI agents that is actually, I think, a CIA agent. and um, Or dirty, dirty CIA. And um, it just it shows there is a whim, whimsical side to this film, and many people consider it to be like a comedy. And I honestly have to disagree that the film is a comedy. It has humor in it, but it is more of a tense thriller that pep has peppered humor throughout the film. It's not a comedy. Right. I, I, I don't agree know completely. why they call it a comedy because it's not. Yeah. If it were a comedy, the score would reflect that. And it doesn't. Um well, I mean, I mean, well, a little bit. And they're whimsical, yeah. but you know, well, no, but for I'm the just most saying, like, part. It, there are some comedy movies where the composer plays the music straight. Yeah. And I think those are, those are the best comedies mm -hmm. um, with those kind of like, uh, you know, like animal house where Bernstein plays it completely straight. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, for this, I mean, calling it a com I, I hate using the comedy word for it because there, I mean, yeah, you're right. There is comedy in it, but it's just because it's, it's just the way it that these guys, the well, it go, it's the way these guys go about yeah. their business, right? So they're mm -hmm. all pals, they're all buddies. And then it's just like, they, there are some funny situations, but it's not played necessarily for comedy, for comedy no. but it mm -hmm. is, it is funny. Like they have to somehow get that guy's, um, passcode, verbal passcode. And it is <laughs> yeah. a, you know, it's a funny sequence with it her is. trying to, but it's, but that's how they have to go about doing it. And it's not just like a, a ha-ha funny moment. It's like, oh, how are they going to do it? Oh, that's that's kind of charming. Yeah. You know, it's like calling Lethal Weapon an action comedy. Well, it's a, it's mm -hmm. an action thriller with some comedic bits, but that's that, that's what makes it so good. But I wouldn't call mm -hmm. it an action comedy. No. You know, Lethal Weapons, and they're action films. Um, and this one is a is, for me, a techno thriller. And it's one of the better ones. And I think that labeling it as a comedy does the film a disservice. Um, and, and it's just, it should not be described that way, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, when looking at the cues that we're going to play um, for the main 
cues that aren't with dialogue. Um, not that these cues aren't amazing with the dialogue. It shows that they're unreleased, um, that hopefully, I mean, sometime in the future, it would be nice to get a oh, deluxe yeah. Absolutely. Uh, edition of sneakers. And yes. it's sad that it takes companies so long to be able to get things together. Yeah. You can't, you can't have everything at once. No, no, but you I know, mean, hey, mean. look, yeah, hey, hey, back in the nineties, thank goodness we even got what we got. Um, and yeah. we got a 45 yeah. minute album back in the day when the, you know, the AFM's, um, you know, dealings with, with music over 30 minutes. I mean, I'm pretty sure this wasn't a cheap album to produce for James Horner. Mm. Oh no, I doubt it. Um, but today I'd like to play a couple, a few cues to start with. I'd like to play the main title and then too many secrets. Um, because what I find about the main title is it gives us the opposing commentaries on the score and the different colors that James Horner used to put it there. Uh, because you have opposing views. Both Cosmo and Bishop have different views. Even though they're friends, they have opposing views on different subjects. And uh, I think that opening sequence really ties that together. You, you don't need any other exposition regarding these two characters except that one scene. It kind of gives you the background on their characters within just a few minutes of dialogue and with the, the score that's presented to us. And then uh, Too Many Secrets has some very discordant piano, which I really admire, um, because it intensifies the chaos that's about to ensue. And the suspense builds and the tension heightens because you get some strong percussion in regard to that cue and how that, well, I guess it would be like a chaotic piano motif that's used uh, kind of throughout the movie, I think. And it represents that like corruptness or even the innocence of the other side of the coin. What do you think of these? Yeah, the main title is, I think it's playful enough, kind of give you the kind of like this whimsical quality to it. You know, these two buddies, you know, trying to break into a, what were they trying to do anyway? What I were think they trying it was, to hack into? It was, I think it was in regard to close to Watergate. Okay. So I think it had something to do with that. Yeah. But it also introduced kind of like this mysterious tone as well, right? Because this is something new and it's not something that everybody knows what it is. And so, um, you know, Horner's kind of playing around here a bit, um, but, you know, he's introducing some absolutely unique colors that I don't think anybody else would have thought to introduce into a film of this sort, you know, with the voices, the saxophone, the, the kind of, the, 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 the flute and the way that, the way that it's played, uh, it's really amazing. And then again, we were talking about, or I was talking about how, you know, Horner has disguised some of his isms, the things that he already came up previously. And one of his most infamous ones is the four note danger motif um, comes up a lot in his scores. Uh, most famously, I think most people noticed it in Willow. Um, and it's, 
you know, it just, <laughs> it becomes almost laughable later on in his career because it's, it's like a joke. It, it, it just becomes this like, whatever's danger, here's the, I'm like, come on, man, think of something else. But if you could disguise it and do something different with it, then I'm all for it. And he does that so perfectly in this main title with the, with the saxophone, that the four note danger motif is there, but it's just like, you're not really thinking that that's what it is. And I really do appreciate that from James Horner in this score because he's really, really thinking about um, you know, what he's going to do and do differently in this film. And then, you know, as we get it, go along, uh, what we call the genius motif, that kind of piano ostinato, which I mentioned earlier, which you will then hear in the forefront of scores like Searching for Bobby Fisher, Beautiful Mind, and Centennial Man, um, that becomes a brand new element in, you know, Horner's arsenal. And, and so this cue, the main title really showcases how Horner can take his, the things that everybody thinks that they know and heard before and disguise them so perfectly. When you get to too many secrets, this is when this film becomes really serious because they have the black box and now they're going to play with it. And they're at the party, right? They all think they're going to get their $125,000. They're talking about what they're going to do with it. And uh, Bishop and uh, I guess he's playing Crease or somebody mm-hmm. in, in Scrabble. Scrabble, And yeah. um, so, you know, the whole thing, is, it's all very lighthearted, but then becomes deadly, deadly serious when the black box is because they start hearing what the others are doing they hear what the others are doing but then bishop starts thinking about c-tech astronomy and he's like that's not a real place so he then takes the scrabble pieces you know spells out c-tech astronomy and then starts rearranging the words and of course that becomes the anagram too many secrets horner hits that right on on beat. Yeah. And things yeah. then get serious because while they're doing that, you got mother and uh, Whistler horsing around on the black box and they think it's a toy and mm. they're about to break into anything and everything. And they're trying to figure out what, what, we, what can we do? What's, what's the highest up we can go that, you know, well, they there's have a no, list. Well, they, they have he, like a, well, a black he does. List yeah. He's things. talking about, yeah. It's like, what can you get into? Can you get into the Pentagon? Can you get into this? Can you get into that? And all of a sudden they break into the, the airport security Mm-hmm. And, and we mentioned that, you know, they're going to bring down an aircraft. I don't, they wouldn't have, but it was like, Hey, which aircraft do you want to bring down or whatever Whistler's line is? It's really almost sinister. And Horner's playing to that. He's like, yeah, what if we did this? What would happen? That's what this black box is all about. And Kreese is yelling, Bishops is yelling, telling them to shut it all off. And that's where Horner's cue just comes to a, a climactic end with, you know, symbols and drums and everything. And it's just, and as you're talking about the piano, I love I think yeah. Horner's crashing, stabbing pianos is mm-hmm. just something I always loved. And whenever I heard that he in the score. again in the Pelican Brief. Oh, it does in the Pelican Brief, but I just love his use of piano. Um, like mm-hmm. even from, from his, uh, you know, just very gentle rolling pianos. But to what he can do with a piano, it could be romantic, it could be dangerous, it can be action-packed. And he does some really unique stuff with the piano. And that all... Mm-hmm is, you know, highlighted by the, you know, the, the claves, the, the, the low rising, uh, brass, there's these brass blasts that are brilliantly recorded by Sean Murphy, you know, the dissonant strings. It's just a, it's a killer thriller cue. And, and if you think again, strip that cue away from the scene, it's not as intense. Horner is doing a lot of the dramatic lifting 
in the Too Many Secrets uh, sequence. Yeah. So let's go ahead and play that.
So next, I'd like to play The Handoff and Playtronic's Break-In. Now, these cues really highlight how even with the Playtronic's Break-In, it's precise and it's intricate. Because earlier when we were listening to the cue for uh, the unreleased cue that was telling us like what was in each room, that was building the suspense for what was about to come. They did surveillance on the building. And so this is where it's uh, meticulous and patient because they need time to be able to get it right, to be able to sneak in to get it, uh, get the box. And there's some whimsy to it. Um, it's even playful and it's very melodic and simple. That's what I like about it though, because several moments in the score include, as we brought out before, we've got the wood blocks and the heavy percussion, but the woodwinds and the tension building uh, strings, because it shows that intricate nature of the scheme and even the actual danger of what's going on, what could happen. And I think it's just, it's brilliant and tense and even really rewarding as to what's going on. What did you think? Yeah, the handoff is, I mean, we mentioned it's a, kind of like this quintessential uh, James Horner 90s uh, thriller action cue. And, you know, we talked about it earlier and how effective it is. And, um, you know, it, it um, I think some of the ideas that are in the handoff then come back to play in the Playtronics break-in, you know, the piano, the drums, the clavs, the, 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 the kind of high register piano hits and the swirling strings. It's all, it's all very, it's all related. All the cues kind of like relate to one another. Um, it's not all over the place. It's a very focused score, but as for Playtronics break-in, you know, I love that whole opening to the Playtronics break-in. I think it's great. And, and, but then you got this cue and it's, it's over 10 minutes in length. And this is, this is the kind of cue that Horner does the best. He loves these long cues and it's incredible how he can sustain the energy and, and match everything that he has to do in 10 minutes. And what's so incredible. And if people don't know this, they've, or some people have heard the story is that when Horner does these lengthy cues, he doesn't do them in pieces. He, from second one to, to the 10th minute, it's all done in one cut or one take. And uh, he'll use that take. And if something screws up, then you're starting from the beginning again. Um, and so he gets this, he gets a nice, a, a genuine um, organic flow to the piece while he conducts, while he conducts. And so what I think is so amazing about this sequence, and for those that have seen it, it's, you know, Robert Redford, he's walking across the uh, Cosmo's office after breaking into it. Yeah, and the, and the emergency um uh, system is it'll detect movement, but nothing uh, faster or slower than like what two inches per second. So that's how fast Robert Redford has to go. So if you can imagine an action sequence with a fifty-year-old man walking two inches per second, um, you know, carrying this black box and trying to get across one room to the other, that's our action sequence. I mean, you try to sell that to an audience, and so again. Strip the music out of this scene. Oh yeah, it does. You strip the music away from the scene, and you are you do not get the energy 
or the tension or the excitement. And again, this is what Horner does so well. I mean, if you go back to a scene like Stealing the Enterprise in Star Trek Three, he takes slow-moving spaceships and turns it into one of the most exciting action sequences of all time. And so that's what he does here, a very slow-moving action sequence that just builds and builds and builds and builds with with great tension. I mean, there's even one scene where they cut to it and it's just a close-up of the black box just moving into, into frame, like just floating there. And Horner's just ripping with the with his cue. You know, like these militaristic snares, the piano's going crazy, and it's just like, wow, it's amazing. And the thing is, it's not too dense that it that it just takes over everything. It's there, complements it, and then tells you as the audience that, my goodness, this is the most tense thing in the entire world. And what's also really cool about it is there is a bit of comedy in this sequence. So, you know, if you listen carefully, there are some woodwind calls that show up about halfway through the piece. And this is the moment where Kreese, who's in the truck, talking to Bishop over the headset, um, he tells him to hurry up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm going as fast as I can because he can't go more than like, two inches I per can't second. Go any faster. Yeah. And it's and it's it's a gut busting line. And I absolutely love it. And and you you insert that into one of the most intense sequences in the entire film. And the thing is, Horner acknowledges it just slightly, but it's just there. It's just enough that, hey, you know, the composer's on the same page. It's just a masterfully scored sequence. And uh, I'm not really sure whether the last uh, couple of minutes are in the film or not, but they kind of slow things down. You know, so there's kind of like slow strings and voices and there's that four-note danger motif again on the sax. But um, everything for like, you know, the first eight minutes, just absolutely a, a master class in suspense scoring. Horner does it so, so well. And it's a master class in taking slow-moving things and making the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah. And so now, let's play those cues.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Lastly today, what I'd like to play is The Escape, Whistler's Rescue, and The Sneakers theme. Now, James Horner really gives us some great action pieces for when there is the need for a rescue. And with this rescue, this is what is so brilliant about this film. Because everyone can't have access to the truck. And Sidney Portier, uh, Crease, he's outside the truck. He He's not in the truck. He's having to deal with a guard. And then someone else, uh, they've been bamboozled with you know a couple other people they're dealing with they are not in the truck the only person in the truck is whistler and i think james horner really heightens the tension in this scene by giving us kind of almost a militaristic um percussion to the scene and then you get some of the whimsy that is built up uh by him taking control of the truck and actually driving it because when i saw this for the first time i was like oh my goodness a blind man is going to drive that truck down yeah. the hill <laughs> and it was hilarious but yet also very tense because bishop's trying to give him directions and trying to tell him where to go and he's trying to give him the best directions to a blind man and it's really tense the way James Horner presents it uh, with the strings and even getting the um, saxophone in there playing Bishop's theme. And I, I really appreciate that uh, for the scene because it's just, it's a tense builder of a scene. And then with the sneakers theme, that it rolls through my head every so often now um, because I've listened to it so many times and every once in a while a situation will come up in life and you just start humming to yourself you know you just can't help it because it's almost a waiting theme you know you're you're waiting to see what happens or um, you know with with the sneakers theme, they're a group of people that are um, set up to work together and they work together brilliantly because even at the tensest moment where Bishop is in the room, Cosmo's there, uh, they're being surrounded by guns and then um, Carl jumps down from the ceiling and tackles one of the guys. And it's just, it's crazy. And James Horner really uses that even to a point of using silence as part of that tension. Um, and I think it's just, it's really unique the way he does it. And um, how even though the sneakers theme is only third in the tracks that is listed on the score... It, it's played like a full concert arrangement. That's what I like about 
that theme is James Horner lets things loose, uh, providing some light and airy colors to that orchestra. And then even using the, the piano and the chimes uh, to help along with that, those woodwinds um, that are used throughout that one theme. And I think, I mean, we've discussed it many times during this uh, episode that James Horner really knows how to use certain themes to build character, to build um, a melody that someone will remember for a long time. Uh, what are your closing thoughts on this amazing movie and its music, even throughout this these two themes? Yeah, what I like about The Escape and Whistler's Rescue is this is where Horner lets this one particular cue really stand out and be different. And you're kind of wondering why does this not sound like everything else? And I think you're right. This is, it's a scene that this is played for fun. I mean, Bishop's already out of the building and now he's going to direct Whistler, a blind man Hmm. to drive to him across a parking lot that has islands, you know, separating parking spots and cars and it's just an absolutely nuts sequence. So when you realize that, yeah, he's the only one left in the truck because Crease uh, and Mother are outside dealing with the guards and Bishop needs the truck to come get him, you know, Whistler being the only one there, I mean, he's about to experience something he's never experienced before. And I think Horner's really cluing in on that, that while this is a terrifying experience for Whistler, it really is a little bit of fun and something he's never done before and he never will do again. And so it seems like it's the ultimate fantasy for a blind person is to drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a feeling they'll never learn ever experience. And so that's where this cue feels like a fantasy cue. And um you know, we got we got him driving backwards and forwards and you know, jumping over these, uh, these islands, these uh, concrete islands and hitting cars and in Horner's, you know, matching that whole sequence to just perfectly in his music because we get these uh, uh, flourishing uh, flute lines, you know, whenever uh, Whistler does a jump mm-hmm. over one of them. It's, it's, yeah. re- it's really awesome. And, and so, you know, it, it just, it just bursts to life. And, you know, as he's speeding through this, this parking lot, um, you know, there's a bit of tension, um, that we've had beforehand, but that all seems to kind of go away for a little bit. And we're, you know, we're witnessing this wonderful, uh, relief for a few minutes and it's really most welcome in the film. Um, because Horner's really, uh, he, he makes the best of the sequence with some, it, it's really a smooth cue. So it's kind of soaring heroic at the same time. And, it's a cue you would not expect to hear in this film. And I think there's even like tambourine and everything like of that sort. So Whistler's Rescue is definitely one of the big highlights in the score. And then obviously Horner loved it so much that he reprised it in the uh, the end credits with his sneakers theme. And then speaking of 
uh, the sneakers theme. You know, Horner does this every so often. He'll, uh, you know, like John Williams would do, um, Jerry Goldsmith would do, and just present the main theme as a, a concert piece, just a standalone piece. Like, here's the main theme from start to finish, complete, uh, a complete realized piece of music. And it just highlights everything that's so great about the the melodic ideas and the orchestral colors that Horner came up with because again it's it's like nothing else in Horner's canon and you can't really say that he did something of this sort like this theme again and I'm trying to think if he ever did again class action a year earlier has a sax solo but it's and it's still it's, it's a really good theme like too the but it's thing. not like this because this incorporates more jazz into uh into the theme which again goes back to the beginning of the movie and that cue that we played that unreleased cue which is the main title going into that um going into that really killer blues cut called really and so horner has you know understood that and so the jazz plays a role in in Bishop's life as well. And so that is then incorporated into the theme. So you're hearing a bit of jazz. It's not like typical jazz, but it's Horner, you know, playing around with the, the hi-hat and, um, and, and then the sax and the piano. And it's just, it's such a lovely, you're right. It's an earworm. That's what it is. It definitely is an earworm. You hear it and you just can't get out of your head. And I think the the only way that we can end the program is with this superb piece of music. Yeah. So you can find me through social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Soundtrack Alley. Uh, look at my website, SoundtrackAlley.com. Definitely check out Cinematic Sound Radio and all its fine podcasts through the station at CinematicSound.net. Um, email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com. Check out the archive of the show on soundtrackalley.com and through the link at anchor.fm, but it's also found on I, on Apple Podcasts, um, and that's through cinematicsound.net. Um, of course, I've, I've kind of stolen some of your thunder because it is <laughs> your network. Of Eric. course. Yes. Uh, what else can you tell me about Cinematic Sound Radio? Well, I, I want to tell you that the the first two shows were quite a success with uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and uh, with Batman uh, Returns. And we've uh, gotten quite a bit of feedback yeah. regarding the Batman Returns, so that's really exciting. Yeah, the, these shows are they're very very uh, unique to the station. And um, I, I think that us discussing these movies in, in, in great length and really, it really does help. And so, yeah, both shows were, were fantastic. They, everyone seemed to really, really love them and, and love the content. And so I'm just kind of glad that we, uh, we get to continue on here and, uh, and, and do more. So exactly. Yeah, and there like we I said, have so many good shows coming oh, up. Oh man, I can't wait. And it, I mean, and it gets it, it gives me a chance to you know I I love to talk, 
it gives me a chance to, to to talk more about about these movies that I that I really enjoy. So, um, you know, it's great to have. It really is great to have you on board. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm very glad to be here. So let's go ahead and enjoy these closing cues. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>